conversation, a little more Elvis, please. All this aggravation is satisfaction in me. Come on, baby, let's start talking. Mark, welcome to our humble little Elvis podcast that we put together. I know, Kevin, it's so exciting because, um, you know, I've been an Elvis fan for many years. I've been performing Elvis, but also I love uh, preserving the history of Elvis and um, the connections I've made over the years performing. I thought, why not, you know, contact these people and get them to have a little chat with us about the king? Well, you have uh, access to the inner circle. I mean, uh, to, to a bunch of people that that I know about and I know I've heard of, but I've never spoken to them. We, we're going to get the opportunity to speak to these people. You know, whether they're the hairdresser, the jeweller, someone who hang around, used to hang around at the gates of Graceland. You've, you've got to you've got to tap into them all. It's an amazing little uh, little gold mine we've got here. Exactly, and I mean. You know, it sort of happened organically for me, and I think I've been guided in in certain ways to, you know, make contact with all these people, and I love hearing their stories. And, and you know, I've had the opportunity of sitting at a dinner table, and you hear these stories. So why not share them with Elvis fans? And there's no shortage of those, that's for sure. Now you've just actually come back from uh, your most recent trip to uh, to America, which was a, another one of those trips that you do where you take Elvis fans over and show them some of those little spots that uh, that aren't, don't make it into uh, into many of the folklore stories. Exactly, and and there's always a, a couple of little surprises. I point a few things out, and um, you know these are the things that uh, we love, you know, educating Elvis fans about. And um, this is another way of really you know, again, preserving that history and educating Elvis fans on stories because some of these people don't want to write books. They don't want to take advantage of the position that we, they were in. Yeah. So um, it's great that we, uh, you know, can share these stories with with true Elvis fans. And we start with an absolute ripper, uh, Sam Thompson. Tell us a little about Sam's role in the, in the inner sanctum uh, with, with Elvis. So Sam was head of uh, chief of security in the in the later years, and uh, but in 1972, when Linda Thompson um, started dating Elvis, um, he was just a regular cop in Memphis, and um, he got called around to Graceland a couple of things, and I let him tell those stories, but um, you know, so he he was asked several times by Elvis, "Why don't you come and work for me?" But he was, you know, he was just a cop and. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he, he started working for Elvis uh, on and off and he could go back to the force, work for Elvis for a couple of weeks and go back. And then in the end he went full time. But, you know, he was almost like a brother-in-law, wasn't he? Yeah, you know, was- and a relationship that outlasted the relationship that Elvis had with his sister. Which is, yeah, exactly. which is kind of weird you know. too, but it's, a, it's an amazing insight. You're going to hear from Sam in, in just a tick, so we, we look forward to that and look forward to many of the other people that we've got coming up uh, on this on this podcast. So let's have a listen to uh, this uh, very, very entertaining man. His name is Sam Thompson. Very exciting. There he is. Hey, Sam. How are you? Good. How you doing, Mark? Yeah, good, mate. How's everything down under? Yeah, really good. Thanks for doing this. It's uh, awesome. I, I do it for you, my brother. Hey, Sam, I'm Kevin. Yeah, nice to meet you, Kevin. Well, let's start. When did, when, uh, I mean, you met Elvis, obviously, through your sister. 
Exactly. People ask me, how'd you meet Elvis? And I said, well, there's a long version, but the short answer is he was dating my sister, you know? So, but, uh, but I was a cop in Memphis and, uh, Elvis and Linda met, they met in July of 72 and, uh, pretty much right away. She wanted us to meet him, but I was really, really reluctant. I, you know, this was my baby sister. So I'd spent my whole life protecting her. And uh, this was an older man who had been married, divorced, and had a child and was a rock and roll star. And, you know, I was convinced that he was going to break her heart. So I just felt like, well, you know, this thing will, this it's a phase, it'll pass. And a couple of months went by and um, my mother called and, and she said, you know, we went over to Graceland last night. We met Elvis. And I went, what? Now, you got to remember, this is 1972 in Memphis, Tennessee, the buckle of the Bible belt. And Linda had moved into Graceland, as we would say, you know, without the benefit of matrimony. And they were living together over there. And I figured, you know what, Kevin, if if, if he can win my mother over, I have nothing to say. <laughs> so <laughs> so my, my wife and I went over there in, uh, I believe it was November. He had just gotten out of the hospital, and uh, as I recall. But anyway, it was November, I think, of 72. And we went to Graceland, and that's when I met him. Your first memory of, of, of when he walked in the room, was was that a moment? Oh, yeah. You know, we for, for people who are listening that have been to Graceland, they go downstairs to the basement area, that, that big yellow room with all the mirrors in it and the bar. Well, it wasn't decorated like that then. It was, it was a windowless basement. It had the televisions in it, um, but uh, and I think it had the bar in it, but it was pretty much sparsely, you know, furnished. And I was sitting, I, I had my sheriff's uniform because I had to go to work the next morning really early. And of course, Elvis was Elvis and he didn't get up until late in the afternoon. So the meeting took place at, you know, at midnight or after. And my wife and I are in the, that room with my sister, Linda. And uh, suddenly I just felt the hair on the back of my neck stand up, you know, like somebody's behind you. And I turned around and Elvis is standing in the door with a complete karate gi on. Apparently he had been working out. And he had uh, sunglasses on and uh, a Greek fisherman cap and a Tipperillo cigar. <laughs> and, you know, he's got sunglasses on in a windowless basement at midnight. And I thought, that's the coolest damn thing I ever saw. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah. he, walks all the way across, he walks all the way across the room, sticks his hand out and says, hi, I'm Elvis Presley. You know, like, I don't know that. I'm in his house to meet him. But <laughs> he was just very charming and disarming and... Uh, over the next, you know, four or five years, I saw him do that to people time and time again. And it was just, it, it was part, partly, I think, just his upbringing, the, his humility and his upbringing. And I also think partly because he was smart enough to realize how disarming that was to walk up to somebody and say, hi, I'm Elvis Presley, you know. <laughs> yeah. Sam, um, obviously, I've known you now for about 11 years. And, I'm sorry, uh, what's your name? <laughs> 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 we have known each other a while marco yeah, yeah. You're right. and and uh you know i brought you out to australia we we did some shows and i just love your stories well there's, there's so many over the, over the years you know for the first i guess four years i knew elvis um i didn't work for elvis we were just friends and uh and he was very good and very gracious to me and my family he he bought my sister a house. He bought me a house. He bought my parents a house, bought us all cars, gave us jewelry, took us on trips together. And this is all from 72 up to around 75. Uh, and, and then I started traveling with him pretty regularly. 
to help out with security. But um, I do remember the the day he bought our house. We were uh, I had been injured in a, an accident at the jail. I was I was a cop and I was working in the jail and I had gotten into a fight and I'd broken uh, my leg. I'd actually torn some ligaments in my knee, so I had a big cast on. And uh, Melinda called and she said, "You know, Elvis wants you guys to come over." And uh, and so you know, I was off work, and so my wife drove me over there, which was sort of an ordeal with me in this big cast. And we get there, and Elvis says, "I want to. We're going to take a little trip." And so we get in the black studs, which I think is on display there at Graceland now. Yeah. And uh, I sit in the back seat. Elvis is driving. Linda's in the front, and I'm behind Linda so that my left leg can be stuck up in between the two of them. And my wife is beside me. And Elvis is using the cast on my leg, you know, sort of as an ashtray and a and an armrest, and he's making all <laughs> kinds of jokes. I wish I had that cast. I think he signed it for me. <laughs> but we drove down to the Circle G, which he didn't own anymore, but he showed it to me. And uh, we drove as we were driving back, we were on some little dusty uh, highway there in Mississippi. And there was this uh, little black boy that was on the side of the road with a big sign that said watermelons, one dollar. Now, you have to remember, the four of us are in the studs. And there's like two or three chase cars, you know, Billy Smith and those guys and the valets. And I think Red and Sonny, those guys were behind us. And uh, so Elvis all of a sudden just pulls over suddenly and, you know, clouds of dust are, are bellowing. And all of a sudden these other cars pull over too. And Elvis jumps out and, and asks that kid, he said, hey, how much for the watermelons? And, and this kid looked at Elvis like he had two heads and he just pointed at the sign. He said, one dollar and he said well, what if i buy them all he said one dollar <laughs> and elvis just started laughing and i think it was billy or somebody that walked up behind him he said pay him so somebody peeled off some money and paid this kid and we bought the whole stand and uh, we're all putting these watermelons into the backs of our of our cars and uh, except for me I, i'm hobbling around but uh, so we we all load up and we go back to Graceland and we unload these watermelons and give them away to everybody. And then Elvis says, Hey, do you guys, would you mind taking a little ride with me? I'm thinking about buying some real estate. And, uh, you know, we didn't have any clue what he was talking about, but we said, sure. So we get back in the car and we drive right behind Graceland where his father, where his father lived. And there was a house for sale. Uh, and he pulls up in the driveway and he had all this set up by the way, but he goes to the front door knocks on the door this woman comes and elvis waves us all inside and uh you know we walk around now, you got to remember this is like maybe a 12 1300 square foot home not a very big house but we were living in a postage stamp apartment you know yeah and uh so uh we look around the house and elvis looked at my wife he said louise do you like this house and she said, oh, Elvis, this is really nice. He's, he reached in his pocket, pulled out a set of keys and dropped them in her hand and said, good, it's yours. <laughs> and, you know, we we just stood there, you know, with our mouths open. And he, uh, Louise, I think, in my recollection, she said something along the lines of, Elvis, you can't do this. And he said, honey, I'm rich. I can do anything I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that was in, let's see, that was in June of 73. So I had, I'd only known him, you know, six or eight months. But I've been over Graceland a bunch, you know, and I had, uh, 
uh, you know, he'd asked me to go to Hawaii with him in January of 73, but I was afraid to ask the sheriff for any time off. I mean, I was fairly new with the sheriff's department. And so I just, you know, I thought, well, this is probably not an opportune thing for me to do. And I also just didn't realize what a momentous, you know, event this was going to be, the Aloha from Hawaii special. So uh, I, I had the opportunity, but I wasn't smart enough to take it, Kevin. So, uh so anyway, but but I've been to a recording session at Stax, and I've been to Graceland. I've been riding motorcycles with him, and you know we've been together for a while, so as friends. But yeah. uh, but I was still completely stunned, you know, when when he bought a house for us. What what's what was the address of that house? Thirteen Seventeen Favelle F A V E L L Drive. In yeah, Memphis, right. it was in Whitehaven. It literally—you could throw a rock from Graceland and hit it. There was in White, just that maybe three-block area there, right behind Graceland. Uh, there was Vernon's house, and my house, and my parents' house, and Linda's house. So we 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 spent several years there thinking we were family, and and I, and I think we were family in a sense. Yeah, just not with the benefit of matrimony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you go to Graceland, you hang out at Graceland's and, and you, you're sort of sitting around with Elvis. Uh, what, what are you doing? There were times, uh, well, we were, we were talking. I mean, literally talking, listening to some music. Uh, and Elvis was an eclectic guy. You know, he liked to do things. He liked to ride motorcycles, so we would do that quite a bit. Uh, he liked uh, to have um, um, bottle rocket fights with the golf carts, so we would do that. We would watch movies. He... Uh, he loved Monty Python, and uh, and he he liked the Holy Grail. I think that was one of his favorites. He liked Peter Sellers movies. We would go to uh, Memphian Theater there in Memphis. We'd rent the whole theater out and watch two or three movies at night, stay up all night long, uh, and then we would talk. Uh, Elvis, I've said this before many times. You know, Elvis was not necessarily all that well educated. He only had a high school education, but he was a very intelligent man and he was extraordinarily well read. He'd read books on Nitsky, you know, philosophy. He read everything. He read a lot of books on different type of religions, everything from Judaism to Buddhism to Christianity. He, he told me one time that he, he used to wear the, a, a Christian cross, an Egyptian ankh, and a, a five-star Jewish Star of David. And he said a fellow asked him one time, um, of course, I'm just repeating a story he told me, but he said a fellow asked him one time, he said, my son, are you confused? And I laughed and he, I said, what'd you, what'd you say to him? He said, I told him, no, sir, I just don't want to miss out on heaven on a technicality, <laughs> so, <laughs> which, which really was his attitude, you know? Yeah. At Graceland, didn't you sometimes when Elvis was resting, you'd jam, you'd have a jam with one of the boys with the guitar? I'm certainly not a musician, but I will tell you that uh, that I had a I had I had a guitar that Elvis had given me, and uh, let's see, it was in uh, well, he gave me a Gibson guitar sometime before 1973, and and I was and I will tell you that maybe this is a, a lead off to that story, but I was in a, I was in that house Elvis bought me, and and uh, in, in uh, June of '73, so in November of '73. We were we were in the house and the doorbell rings and it's Elvis and my sister and they would come by once in a while not often but sometimes and uh, Ricky Stanley his stepbrother was with him and uh, he basically just came in and said I came in here for dinner what are you guys cooking and my wife was cooking dinner so and my so I called my mother and dad and they came over 
And I was I was playing a guitar that Elvis had given me. I was trying to learn early morning rain. And, you know, God bless him, but Gordon Lightfoot died yeah. at 84. And one of my favorite songs, and of course, Elvis cut that song, too. He loved Early Morning yeah. Rain. But uh, John Wilkinson, his rhythm guitar player, was teaching me the chords. And so I'm sitting there with a little Sony cassette player in the in my den. And, uh, and it was recording as I'm playing, and I'd stop it and listen to, you know, as you would do to see what does that sound like. And uh, when Elvis came in. Yeah. So when he came in and I'm sitting there with his guitar, uh, you know, uh, the tape is still running and I'm, I'm playing, you know, and I'm showing what John taught me. And Elvis just shook his head and said, give me that thing. And he grabbed the guitar and he just started playing songs and uh, the tape is still running. So I point to the tape and Elvis nodded like, that's OK. And uh, it runs for about 45 minutes. I ended up with like five or six songs and a bunch of jokes and chatter and that type of thing. And uh, years later, uh, it was released by BMG uh, through that, what is it called, FTD, I guess, the, uh, yeah. the, the, the they use that. And uh, it was released, and I, they asked me, and I wrote the liner notes for it. It's called Made in Memphis. Uh, and it's really cool. It just sort of shows how relaxed and homey that we were all together. But yeah. I think, the, the, so that's one guitar story. But I think Mark's talking about the time that Elvis caught us playing at Grayson. Is that what you're talking about? That's the one, yeah. Yeah. So so <laughs> this is Kenny uh, Rogers song, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh you picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. <laughs> and I don't remember I really don't remember the date of this, but but maybe seventy six. But I, uh, Kenny Rogers had come out with this song and I'm not sure when it was released, but uh, Dick and I were sitting at the dining room table in Graceland and uh uh, you know, we like to take a drink once in a while. Now, Elvis didn't drink, and he didn't like anybody around him that drank. But his Aunt Delta Biggs, Vernon's sister, she would take a drink. And I knew where she kept her bottle of whiskey. So we were sitting there. You know, it's maybe 2 o'clock in the morning. I don't know. And uh, we're sitting there at that table, and we're going over all the tour sheets. And we're, okay, where do we need to involve the criminal intelligence divisions for these police departments? And how high the stage is and ingress and egress. Most of our jobs as bodyguards was logistics and planning. It wasn't really, you know, throwing people off the stage or hurting anyone. So, but anyway, we were doing that and we were having a few. And so I went in there and got that, that bottle, I believe it was old charter and we started drinking and, you know, and, and, and I, and there was a guitar there it wasn't mine, but there was a guitar as, as you would imagine there would be at Graceland. And I just picked it up and I started strumming. And the, the more I drank, the better I was convinced that I could play that song. <laughs> and the more Dick drank, he was convinced that he could sing that song. Yeah. And so we're sitting there and we're just wailing. You picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille, with four hungry children and a crop in the field. And and suddenly, you know, the, the hackles on my back stand up again. And I turn around and Elvis had come downstairs through those back stairs and he's in his blue pajamas and he's just standing there looking at us and he shakes his head. He said, let me tell you guys, he said something about hearing a cat getting killed downstairs or something. And he said, I'll tell you what, boys, he said, if you'll leave the singing to me, I'll leave the security to you. And we said, we said deal. <laughs> and of course we, we left pretty quickly after that. <laughs> So no offer of Elvis to write the liner notes for your album? Oh, how how unbelievable! But 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 he could have. You know what? That's a pretty good idea. He should have written the liner notes and 
<laughs> you know, sometimes when I when I speak publicly, I, I, they'll introduce me and I'll say, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to do a medley of my hits. I'd like to. I'm incapable of it. But <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you, you told me that you were employed as a as a cop and you your boss was so good to you that he gave you leave anytime you wanted to mm. to go and work for Elvis. Yeah, my, my boss was a guy named Roy Nixon and he, he was a personal friend of Elvis. Elvis gave him a, uh, he gave Roy, he gave Bill Morris, the predecessor of Mercedes. He gave Roy Nixon, I think, a, a car. You know, he, he stayed tight with law enforcement in that area. I remember I was in a squad car one night and the, the dispatcher called my, my number, car six, Adam six, whatever it was, and said, you know, call the dispatcher public service. Now, you got to remember, there's no cell phones. So public service meant go find a phone booth, drop a dime in there and call the dispatcher. And I did. In the middle of the night, the dispatcher says, uh, you need to call the sheriff at home. Now, that is something that no police officer wants to hear. I'm thinking, did I lock up his cousin or something? You know, what, what have I done wrong? And I called the sheriff and I said, uh, Sheriff, this is uh, Sergeant Thompson. He said, let me ask you something. He said, do you know Elvis Presley? Now, this is like two, three o'clock in the morning. And I went, uh-oh. I said, uh, yes, sir. He said, well, he just called me. And I'm thinking, oh, God, Elvis called the sheriff and woke him up in the middle of the night. And, and I said, and I said, yes, sir. He said, well, he wants to know if you want to go on tour with him next week. And I said, I beg your pardon? I knew I had no clue whatsoever. He said, yeah. He said, Elvis wants you to go on tour with him for, for two weeks. You want to go? And I said, yeah, I think I do. He said, good. You're off duty without pay. And he hung up. And all I could remember, all I heard was without pay. <laughs> <laughs> so I immediately dropped into the diamond there, and I called that that private number that I had at Elvis's bedroom. And he answered the phone, and he was just laughing. And he said, I knew it'd be you. You knew you'd call. And I said, yeah, and I told him what happened. He said, man, don't worry about it. Don't, don't worry about without pay. Don't worry about that. You'll have fun. And so I went on this tour, and it really wasn't two weeks. I think it was like eight or nine days. And then at the end of the tour, uh, you know, Elvis is giving bonuses out. And it was before the Lisa Marie, so he had a, a leased plane. And he's calling guys back, and they're coming out with envelopes. And I'm thinking, what's going on? And so my time came, and Joe Esposito, the road manager, says, he said, Elvis has got something for you. And I went back there, and Elvis gave me a big hug, said, I'm really glad you came. And, you know, here's a bonus. He took a ring off his hand and put it on my, my hand, gave me a really beautiful ring, and then uh, hand me an envelope with $5,000 in $100 bills. I was making at that point about $700 a month. And and here's a guy that bought me a house, bought me a car, gave me rings and took me on trips and just handed me five grand in cash. And I thought to myself, this is a pretty good gig. Oh goodness! But, was uh, it a, was it a hard job, Sam? To was was security a difficult job to do, or was it a? a, a I, I mean, you I, talk I logistics. Yeah, you, you, well, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a story that I heard Dave Hebler tell, and I think it was such a great story. I'm going to adopt it uh, with all with all respect to Dave. That you know, here's a man that all these love starved women all over the world wanted to throw their bodies at, and my job was to keep that from happening. And I had to, on numerous occasions, sacrifice my body to make sure. <laughs> now, I, did, I heard, I actually heard Dave Hebler tell that story, and I just broke up. I guess it was hard from the, from the standpoint that uh, how seriously I took it. 
because he was a member of my family. And at that point, that's exactly the way I felt about him. And uh, and I certainly did do due diligence in terms of protecting him from any credible threats in terms of threat assessment, that type that type of thing. But it was mostly logistics moving you know, 80 people around with three aircraft for 20 days on the road. And yeah, it, it was difficult from that uh, perspective. It was more cerebral than more people think. They think you just sort of showed up and put him on stage and put him in the car and left. And uh, there's a great deal more to it than that. It was the, one of the most fulfilling jobs I've ever had. And I think it's because it was uh, a familial tie there with my sister. Uh, like I say, it's probably one of the, the my, one of my greatest memories of my life. I'm 75 years old. I've been a judge and a prison warden. I've uh, I've been a consultant. I've been uh, uh, I've been a, a chairman of the Public Utilities Commission for the state of Nevada. I've done a lot of things in my life. I co-owned a record label. We signed Michael Bublé and Josh Groban. They were my artists. Uh, the cores, but you know, nobody asked me about that. Uh, mm -hmm. They asked me about Elvis. <laughs> so I, I think that that in point in parcel really tells you just the importance of those experiences with Elvis and what they've meant uh, to my life. Yeah. yeah. The, the, you mentioned credible threat. Were, were there credible threats to his to his life? You, you know, I only remember one or two and, and they, they turned out not to be. Uh, but but Elvis, you know, he always carried guns. And to some extent, he was a little paranoid, you know, because you got to remember, you know, in the 60s and 68, we had Martin Luther King killed yeah. and assassinated. We had John F. Kennedy assassinated in the early 60s. We had Bobby Kennedy assassinated in L.A. Hmm. in 68. And, you know, Elvis was concerned about Lisa Maria, his family. So, yeah, we had to be aware of those those kind of things. And so we prepared ourselves and positioned ourselves to where here's a funny story we were in um i went with him in uh, 1975 to new year's eve show in pontiac michigan he played in front of 60,000 people in an open arena in in uh, the silver dome and he hated the show because he was on a riser the band was i think the band was above him and he was below the band and he couldn't feel you know the the, the energy so he didn't like that show and that was during during that show which is a whole nother story i won't i won't digress but he broke the back end of his jumpsuit out doing karate and he had to take a break in the show and get a towel wrapped around him and come back. But, but, but Sonny West and I, the late Sonny West, who was one of Elvis's primary bodyguards, uh, he, we were just standing there. I wasn't working for Elvis, but, uh, we were talking and he said, you know, Elvis, there's a, a, a threat of a guy that's got a high powered rifle and he's a Vietnam veteran and he's kind of off his meds and, they say he's here and he, he might take a shot at you, but don't worry about it. If he does, we've got, we've got a plan. And Elvis says, well, what's your plan? He said, well, if there's a shot, we've got a guy that's going to kill the power on the lights. All the lights will go out and you just late, you hit the, hit the, the floor there on, on the stage. And Sam and I, we're going to run out there and we're going to cover you. And Elvis looked at us. Now, Sonny was about 240 and I was about 260. And Elvis looked at us. He said, what, what do you mean you're going to cover me? He said, and Sonny said, well, we're going to jump on you and protect you with our bodies. He said, hell, I'd rather get shot at and have you big son of a bitch <laughs> jump on me. <laughs> so, you know, it sort of broke broke the tension a little bit, you know. But uh, but he was keenly aware of, of, of those type of things. And, and like I say, he carried a gun, even on stage. He had a little Derringer that he would put in his boot. We were playing somewhere one night. Uh, as he, he began to duck walk across the stage. 
John Wilkinson didn't particularly like guns, but I'm, I was it's over at the edge of the stage and I looked at John Wilkinson and he's making all sorts of contortions with his face and nodding. And I'm thinking, Oh God, what he's having a stroke. I mean, what is this? You know, we're, on, we're in the middle of a show and I look down and there's a nice shiny little Derringer land right there on the stage in front of John where Elvis had been, you know, moving across that stage and it had popped out of his boot. So back in those days, my knees worked better than they do now, Kevin. So I kind of duck walked across the stage and grabbed that pistol and just kept going to the other side. <laughs> uh, After the show was over, you know, we get in the car and I said, here, Elvis, you drop this. He said, oh, okay. <laughs> Obviously, Linda's relationship with Elvis finished. Were you, were you worried at that stage that that was going to be the end of your tenure with, with him? I was more, I guess, worried as uh, – is a, a a more encompassing term. I was prepared to to leave at that point. In fact, they broke up in uh, uh, San Francisco in November of '76. Now I, I had only been working full time for him for maybe six months or so. I left my job with, at the sheriff's department with the understanding that I could come back anytime I wanted. So I had a I had a parachute, uh, and Elvis knew that. I, when I went to see him. I, I actually just went in. We we were in. Uh, we came back to Memphis. So in December of '76, in Graceland, I just went upstairs to talk to him, and I said, "Look, you know, you and Linda are you're not in that relationship any longer." And he had uh, started a new relationship with this, with this new girl, Ginger Alden. And I just said, "Look, if I'm making you or Ginger uncomfortable by my presence, uh, you know, it, a position that I have, I think you you carry your your resignation, your breast coat pocket because it's a position of trust. So you can have it anytime you want. Uh, and he laughed and hugged me, and you know, and and as I recall, gave me something. And uh, his 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 way of, of sort of expressing himself was to pull a ring off and hand it to you, or a bra- or a bracelet, or give you something. You know, he was the most most overtly generous man that I've ever known in my entire life. But uh, he hugged me and he said, no, 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 I want you to stay. And yeah, he, was, he got a bit morose at times because of Red and Sonny, the firing and them writing a book. Uh, and he would say things to me that, you know, he had felt pe- betrayed, whether that was true or not. I, I, I won't get into that. That's not my opinion. I'm just telling you what he said. Mm. And, and then he would say, you know, I need you to stay, uh, you know. And that's why he brought Ed Parker and his karate instructor to travel with us from time to time, because it was just me and, and Dick Grove, the other bodyguard. So I felt like I felt like he needed me. I felt like he needed not necessarily me, but he needed additional security. And I knew he trusted me and he relied upon me. So I stayed. Uh, and I think evidence of that is the last official act that I had before he died was to go to Graceland and pick up his daughter, Lisa Marie, and, and fly her back, you know, to, uh, to uh, Priscilla. And he wouldn't have done that if he didn't trust me. And, uh, and that's something that, that meant a great deal to me. Mm. Sam, you were talking about guns before, and Elvis always carried guns. Um, what about this state that um, guns were illegal and Elvis was getting off the plane? <laughs> I love the fact that Marcus heard all these stories and he's prompting me because <laughs> that's what you do to old people, Kevin. You prompt them. Like this, right? <laughs> Be a great story. It's all right, Sam. I know I'm an old person. I'm, I'm with you. Uh, okay. But uh, I want I want to say it was Nassau. Maybe it was Binghamton. It was in New York, and uh, we had the Lisa Marie. We were flying in on that. And I was working for Elvis, and he called Dick and I. And Dick was a former police officer in Palm Springs. 
And of course, I was police, uh, a sheriff's deputy in Memphis, and we carried weapons and we carried credentials from our departments too. But uh, so Elvis calls us back. And he said, "Listen, they've just got this new law, and I, he, I think he called it Sullivan's Act or something. He knew he knew about it, and he said they've just passed this law, and even off-duty police officers can't carry their guns. So you guys have to leave your guns on the plane. I don't want any problems here." We said, "Okay." And then, of course, we looked at each other, and we we were not going to leave our guns on the plane. So uh, I think it was I, I went Dick and I went down down. They had these jetways, metal jetways back in those days. They'd push them up to the plane, you know, when you landed. Yeah. And so they pushed that that thing up. And Dick and I went downstairs, and the colonel is standing there. We met the mayor and the chief of police, and and I don't know, there was three or four hundred people behind the fence. And when Elvis came out of that plane, they all started yelling, Elvis, Elvis. And when they did, he just, I know you can't see me, but he threw his hands straight up. Uh, and he was wearing uh, basically pajamas, you know, with a karate gi top over the top of it. And and when he threw his hands up, he had two forty-five automatics stuck in that little elastic waistband of those pajamas. And uh, and they they ran down the inside of those pants like two rats trying to get out, and they bounced on every metal step going down that jetway, and they landed at the feet of the chief of police, and he turned around and looked at us like we had two heads, and I thought, man, we're all going to jail. You know, this is exactly what Elvis was talking about. Elvis comes bounding down those stairs, and this sort of relates to the, my my first comment about how he would disarm you he comes bounding down those stairs cabin picks those gun and, and looks at the chief and the chief reached down and picks the guns up and he said well, well welcome to Binghamton, mr mr presley he said well thank you chief and he said i believe these are yours mr presley and he hands the guns back to him <laughs> <laughs> so we get we get in a limo and we leave and that that's just the way things work you know and i think those guns are on display one of them is a, has a turquoise handle i remember that one and I think the other one either had a, I don't remember the color of the other handle, but they were both 45 automatics. And of course they were loaded. Wow. What about Elvis? Don't people know that, that, you know, that, that you would like to share about him? I guess the, the, the individual person that I knew was somebody that, that I would be having a conversation with at late at night. And I would mentally have to pinch myself and say, hold on a second. This is Elvis Presley. You're talking to because it was, it was just another person. He became just another person, not that icon you saw on the stage, not the guy in the jumpsuit, but just a guy. And the things that we would talk about uh, were the things that just guys would talk about. And, uh, and so I, I, that, that's something I think a lot of people don't realize is that he wasn't always what they saw on stage. He wasn't that iconic figure up there. He was a human being, and he had flaws and frailties like every one of us. You know, there were times that that were better than others due to those flaws and frailties. Uh, he was extraordinarily kind, extraordinarily generous, uh, and he was intelligent. His his father told me one time we were we were talking about uh, Elvis giving away the things that he gave away. You know, he'd have shows and he'd give away his cape. He'd, he'd give rings. He'd have Lowell Hayes come in. That happened on one particular occasion. He had fly, uh, Lowell fly into somewhere in the Carolinas and bring a whole tray of rings. Uh, and he gave a ring to everybody on the stage, me included. Then he gave rings to the audience. He gave them to strangers. And when we got ready to leave, Lowell told, we were sitting in the limo, and, and Lowell told Elvis, he said, you know, you should have never asked me because I think you gave away something like $80,000 worth of rings tonight. 
And Elvis just looked at him and said, Lowell, don't worry. Tomorrow night I'll sing 15 more minutes. And, and, and that's a true story. Lowell has told that story, and I was in the car when he said it. But, but he was just that kind of guy. And so when I was talking to Vernon about this, uh, you know, he, Vernon told me, he said, you know, that's a lifelong trait. He said when he was a little boy in Tupelo, if he got like a set of guns, uh, he'd come home and there'd be one, one of his little uh, cap pistols would be missing. And he said, well, where is that? He said, well, I gave it to little Johnny because he didn't have one. So mm-hmm. apparently, even as a kid, you know, and, and maybe I don't know what, buying friendship, maybe that's it, or just being really, really generous. But, but he certainly was the most generous person that I've ever been around my entire life. Mm. I think they didn't capture that in the Elvis movie, Sam. That that was my feeling. Like they didn't touch on Elvis' generosity at all, and obviously the yeah. the times that he gave away cars and and that. And I, I like your story as well. When Elvis gave you a car, can you tell us about that story? Yeah, he gave me two. He gave me the first one was Vernon's cars. I, again, I these, these two cars he gave me, I wasn't working for him. After I went to work for him, I didn't get a car. But, <laughs> but uh, the uh, right yeah. after I'd met him, I, I was at Grayson and uh, went up. It was up there at night, and, and Elvis. It was one of those times when Elvis had bought a, 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 a large number of automobiles and had them brought up. And my recollection was, I believe, I believe they were Lincolns. But in any event, he had them up there, and he was calling out names. He had the keys, and he was giving cars to this one and that one. And I and I was just standing there on the front porch with him, and I was you know happy for ever all the guys that had cars. That's great. I mean, I had no expectations whatsoever. But he sort of looked at me, and I, it was almost like you could see the recognition in his eyes flicker. Like, oh wait a minute, I hadn't given you one. <laughs> and so he he, co- he told his father. He said, "Daddy," he said, "Go get your car." And uh, so his father pulls. It was a sixty. I'm gonna guess. I'm, I want to say it was a sixty nine. Uh, it was a Cadillac uh, Coupe de Ville, beautiful car with almost no miles on it. So Vernon pulls his car around and he says, okay, daddy, here's your new car. And he gave him a new car right on the spot. And then he turned to me and had the keys to Vernon's car and said, here, this is your car. So he gave me a used car, <laughs> but it was obviously it was in Elvis's name as one he had given to Vernon. And I drove that car for about a year. And uh, again, I was a cop. And I, I wasn't making enough money to be able to buy gas for that big old behemoth. <laughs> and I'll always remember, I went, I went to Elvis and I said, listen, I don't want you to think I'm not grateful, but I, I really can't afford to keep this car, you know, for the insurance and the gas and all like that. Is it, is it all right with you if I sold it? And he said, man, he said, once I give you something, it's yours. I could care less. And that was really his attitude. Mm-hmm. And he was that way with all of us. And uh, so with some consternation, I just put an ad in the paper, 69 Cadillac for sale, low miles, $1,200. Some guy showed up, bought it, and he's driving. He drove it off, and if it's still out there, he has no clue that it ever belonged to Elvis Presley because I didn't sell it as that. I just sold it as my car. Oh, wow. And uh, a little bit later on, he bought me a 75 uh, Sedan DeVille, silver, with white interior. And I've got pictures of that in the driveway of the house that he bought me. Yeah, he was. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, you could spend hours just talking about the things that Elvis did for people and just gave to people spontaneously. And it's almost unbelievable now if you start sitting down thinking, okay, what did he do? What did he give to this person and this person, this person? You know, he bought Jerry Schilling a house in Mm -hmm. California. 
still that he still lives in. Yeah. Still has it. Yeah. Yeah. He bought one of his maids a house. He gave, he, I was with him one night and, uh, at the, um, Union Avenue down in Madison Cadillac, and there was a, an old woman, uh, not too old, not not as old as me, but she was standing there looking in the window. And uh, Elvis went outside and he says, "Mammy," he said, if, "If you could have a Cadillac, which one would you pick?" And I'm not sure she was even knew who Elvis was. And she said, "Well, I like that yellow one." He said, "Well, come on inside." And he bought this strange uh, stranger, a woman he had never met in his life and would never see again, and probably didn't know it was Elvis Presley. He bought her a brand new car, Cadillac. So you know. Uh, when I say he was the most generous person that I've ever met, that's what I'm talking about. That's amazing. Is there anything you've kept, anything that, that from the, the, the days of souvenir that, that means a lot to you or, no. or just the memories? Just the memories. You know, I mean, I've, I've never been a, a, a material person. And um, I've had, you know, I, had a, I had actually two TCBs that he gave me. And I sold those many years ago. I had rings and I've sold all of them. I had bracelets and you know, they were nice, and I appreciate them at the time. They were a gesture of his generosity. But what really what really I keep are, are these stories, the memories of, of that particular person and my relationship with him and how it changed. You know, in the early days with Linda and then and then after I went to work for him, and, and then Linda was still there for six months, but my role had changed. And then Linda left, and then for a third time, there was this metamorphosis of, of relationship change between he and I. And to be quite honest with you, he and I got a lot closer for whatever reason. We got a lot closer uh, after he and Linda broke up. And I don't know, I don't know if maybe I, I've often thought about this. You kind of maybe triggered a memory there, but I don't know if it's a little bit of remorse or, or I was, I was a physical manifestation of his previous relationship with my sister. I don't know how else to say it because I was kind of a, constant reminder of that which is why i offered to leave because i didn't want to make that uncomfortable for him um i i, I don't know but he he uh, he was exceedingly generous to me uh particularly uh the last eight eight nine months of his life so no i, I don't have anything i literally have nothing that that i'm, I'm aware of at least <laughs> elvis put you through law school didn't he oh yeah well another funny story there he the the one of the last shows he played in Indianapolis, Indiana, he had a Martin guitar on stage, and again he knew this was he gave me two separate guitars, and this is the second one. And after the show was over, you know, flying back to Memphis, and he says, "I want you to take that, you know, that old guitar that Gibson I gave you. It's not that good." He said, "You take this Martin," and and I thanked him for that. And we got to Memphis, and I got got it off the plane. You know the. David Stanley and Ricky Stanley and Dean Nicopolis, those guys used to unload our luggage for us. So they pulled it off and I put it in my car and I took it home. Uh, and I, you know, I played on it for a little while, but now this is June. Six weeks later, he's dead. And I, I realized I've got something here that's a real artifact. And I actually put it in the car and took it back up to Graceland to give it back to Vernon. Vernon was just you, you can imagine how he was, you know, after after the funeral in, in particular, and he was kind of all over the place, and, and he just kept saying, no, it's yours, he gave it to you, and I want you to have it, so, and I was grateful for that, so Vernon wrote me an affidavit for it, you know, and I had I had the bill of sale from Martin Guitar Company and everything, and then I just put it away and forgot about it, and I started law school, and when it went at night, I tell everybody I was in the remedial section, because uh, <laughs> I worked full-time, 
And it took me four years to get through at night while I worked. But I worked in the courthouse in the daytime with judges and lawyers and in trials. So I really got a great education in the day as well as at night. And I was about halfway through law school, maybe three quarters the way. And I was about to run out of money and steam. And um, the National Enquirer contacted me through the sheriff's department and said they had traced that guitar through his serial number. And they knew that it was probably the last guitar that Elvis ever played. It had plastic residue on the back of it, Kevin, from the hot uh, lights. It was what Elvis said, the hot lights in the CBS TV special. They melted a portion of his, bu of his buckle on his belt, and, and there was a residue on the back of that guitar. So with that and all the provenance that I had, they offered me $8,000 for this $800 guitar. And, man, I took it, and I paid off all my debts you know, uh, for law school. So I tell people Elvis put me through. He just didn't know it, but he ended up putting me through law school. <laughs> sure, and and year, year, yeah, years later, I'm in my in my office in, in the courthouse. Phone rings, and this guy says, Judge, you don't know me. My name is uh, Jeff Ruby. I own this restaurant here in Cincinnati, Ohio. And he said the, 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 the guitar that, that you sold to the National Enquirer, they ran a contest, and I bought the guitar from the lady that, that, that won it. And I have it on display here, and I'd like for you to fly up here and authenticate it for me. And I said, sure, I'll do that. So I went up there, met met him, very nice gentleman, had dinner, and there's that guitar in the, in the case with all that provenance that I spoke of. And I just and so I told him the story, and he laughed, and he had a strange look on his face. I said, what, what, what's the strange look for? He said, you sold it for $8,000. I said, yeah. I said, what did you pay for it? He said, I'd rather not say, but a hell of a lot more than that. <laughs> <laughs> so so sometimes I tell that story uh, when I, I do some motivational speaking to financial advisors and all. And I say, so don't come to me for financial advice because I'm clearly inept. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, I, I, I'll end it by saying this. Elvis, El, when Elvis gave you something, he wanted you to he wanted to see the joy in your face and he wanted to experience the joy of giving and what you did with it meant nothing at all to him it was truly just a physical manifestation of his generosity it wasn't lasting it, he didn't mean for it to be something that you would cherish and hold on to now that's the way i personally felt about it and i saw him do that with every member of the group and i really appreciate your time i just want you to share just one last thing um and uh, it's the gas station story. Uh, not long before he passed away, it was on that last tour in June of 77, and we were in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, we had done a show, I forgot where, maybe Des Moines, and we were on the Lisa Marie. We landed, and uh, we put Elvis in the limo, and we're, we're coming back. And it was me and Joe Esposito and Ginger Alden in the back seat. I mean, I was on a jump seat in the back seat. And Dick Grobe was in the front seat with the chief of police and the driver. It was a private limo. And we're going down the street, and as we come slowly coasting to a red light at an intersection, Elvis just yelled, stop the car. And when he did that, the limo driver just jammed on the brakes, and Elvis reached over me and popped that door open. And as I like to say, you know, those stage boots that he wore, they were never meant to hit the pavement at five miles an hour. <laughs> and when he did, he just slid. And what he had seen is a fight. He had seen a couple of guys beating up a gas station attendant. It turns out it was over a girl, you know, uh, at least that's what I understand. But but we didn't know that. And Elvis saw that. And so he literally slid up to these guys kind of in a karate crouch with his full jumpsuit on. 
and said something along the lines of, you know, you guys leave him alone. Come on, I'll take you both on. And so they, we're all piling out of the car. And the cops are piling out there, pulling their guns. And these two guys, they turn around to Elvis. They square up like they're going to fight. And suddenly one of them says, he raises up and says, aren't you Elvis Presley? And Elvis stands up and says, well, yes, I am. Sticks his hand out. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, in the fight, right? So they shake hands and uh, uh, Elvis gives them both, all uh, all three of them, he gives them autographs. You know, I think think somebody pulled a scarf or two out and gave it to him. and they're standing there, you know, and Elvis is lecturing to them. You, know, you guys, it makes them shake hands. You know, I don't want more of this and more trouble and everything. So we all pile back in the car and I'm in the back seat facing backwards on that jump seat. Now I can see through that back window. And it was one of those surreal moments where you've got these three guys still with a little blood trickling, you know, out of their nose who'd been fighting. And they're, I got their arms around each other with little pieces of paper with his autograph, and they're waving goodbye to us. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Elvis Elvis thought that he laughed. He thought that was so funny. But he loved doing things like that. He liked it. He liked being the superhero that that he that he he knew that he would become one day, yeah. and that's what he was. Yeah, absolutely. Your favorite Elvis song? All of them. <laughs> yeah. I used to say my my favorite song was. Uh, wise men say because at that point uh i knew that i was about to get off work because that was the that was the last song he did on every concert but i do like that song yeah, yeah. but you know the fir- first song uh you know i really wasn't an elvis fan uh, for his music till i met him and then as i say i became a fan of him and then i began listening to his music but the first song i ever heard him sing was in a recording session in december of 76 is stacks and it was promised land so oh, yeah. that one always stuck. That one always stuck out to me, because it's almost a life story about him too, from poverty, riches, you know, that type of thing. Mm. And uh, but they're they're all great. I mean, Elvis would take a song and make it his own. And this is something that, that I realized after I had my record company, you know, because I would have these artists that would come in, and many times they didn't write their own music, and so they would they would take a song from a songwriter that we would pitch to them, and they would record it. But you, you think about something like My Way. I mean, Elvis made that his song, even though Frank Sinatra did it. Early Morning Rain, uh, Gordon Lightfoot is quoted as saying that he kept a copy of Early Morning Rain on his desk. He liked it so much, the way Elvis did it. You know, when Elvis cut a song, he made it his song. So, Yeah. Got a favorite Elvis movie? I never watched any of them, and he didn't either. He 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 hated those movies. He really did. He we we never. I mean, that's just a now. Maybe he did with my sister or some other girls. I don't know. But uh, as far as I know, with none of the guys that were around him, he we we you know we watched Monty Python. We watched uh, Peter Sellers. We watched Patton. <laughs> you know, we watched movies like that. We we didn't we didn't watch his movies because. I think he, I really do believe that he thought that was sort of a, a dark period in his life where he, he wasn't, um, I guess he wasn't motivated, you know, uh, from a, uh, uh, a talent standpoint. I think he thought he could have done more than he was doing in those movies. Now that's just me. So, uh, he didn't tell me these things, but I'm, that's what I gathered. Jerry Schilling had a great quote. He said, Elvis died from artistic disappointment, something like that. Yeah. And, and I do, I, I, I did sort of see that the last couple of years of his life, you know, I think he thought he could have done much more artistically with his life than, than he, than he did do. Although he did, his body of work is pretty incredible. I'm not so sure he gave himself enough credit. 
When you think about him, do your initial thoughts happy happy thoughts or sad thoughts? Uh, a mixture. It's melancholy. Uh, you know, uh, many times happy thoughts, but many times, but mostly because he's not here. Mostly because of, you know, I mean, the man died at the age of 42. I have two daughters that are older than that now. Mm. You know, I have grandchildren. And, uh, you know, to think that, that at 42 years of age that, that he passed away, and, and what a body of work that he left just in the first, what, 18, 20 years of his mm. life. If, if he had lived, what could he have done? So, uh, so I have I have thoughts like that. Mark mentioned the movie. Did you see the latest Elvis movie? And did you like it? I saw it. And I liked it. Yeah, you know, it, it marks right. It wasn't a documentary. It wasn't uh, a biopic by any means. It was uh, it was Baz Luhrmann. It was entertainment. It was big extravaganza. You know, like Moulin Rouge. Uh, I thought this kid uh, Austin Butler did a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it did not show a lot of the personal side of Elvis that, that I knew. But but then again, I didn't expect that. I mean, they only had a couple hours to, in this movie. You know, I mean, this is uh, so. Yeah, it was a good. It, and you know, I think one thing that I really liked about it uh, was the fact that I thought it brought Elvis and his music, and the fact that he was such a rebel that that he was such an iconic rebel in the fifties that just broke open the music business across color lines, racial lines, mm. uh, class lines, everything else. It showed that in the movie. And so I think it brought a lot of young people around to, to the legacy of Elvis and Elvis's music who were not already there. Mm. You know, uh, he, he no longer was a caricature. He was a human being. And you, just, and you could go to that movie. And I've been to a couple of events, and I'd say, how many of you seen the movie? And they'd raise their hands. And I'd say, how many saw the movie, but you weren't Elvis fans? And you wouldn't believe how many hands go up, and from young people. So from that standpoint, I think the movie accomplished its purpose. Uh, It broadened the appeal of Elvis, and it told more of a story about who he really was and what he had really done in the 50s. So I liked it. Yeah. Oh, good. Go see it. I have no, I have no financial interest in it, so that's just a public service announcement. <laughs> <laughs> have you started working on your book, Sam? You know, I don't think I'll ever write one. I really don't. I, I, I just, I guess, no? you know, I guess I'm just too lazy, Mark. And you know, I, I, I'll tell my stories, and uh, and also, yeah. I'm just, I'm just not presumptive enough to think that I have anything really important to say about Elvis. So much has been written about him, and. Uh, yeah. A lot of it, tr- a lot of it true, some of it not. Yeah. Um, and I just would rather not be in that in that ilk of trying to cash in, or I, I have no need for any self-aggrandizement or publicity. I have no need to make any money off of it. Uh, so there's no real incentive for me to do it. I'd rather just tell my stories. And when I'm gone, I'm gone. You know, maybe maybe people remember the stories, maybe they won't. It's just not. I'm not important enough to tell Elvis's stories. He's he's told them all himself through his body of work, and I think that's what needs to be remembered. Amazing insights, absolutely amazing insights. What a what a what a terrific uh, what a terrific fella and a funny man too. Yeah, and, um, I toured with Sam in 2013 with his sister, and that was the first introduction to Australia. He loved it. And we remain friends um, ever since. And I caught up with him in Dallas not long ago when I was there. And, um, you know, to be in contact with someone who was so close to Elvis is amazing. And, um, 
amazing stories that he has and he doesn't want to write a book yeah okay. that, about, that is that is the 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 industry as we know that is kind of foisted off the back of elvis's passing yeah. and elvis's yeah. whole being is is quite quite yeah. distasteful at times but it's so it's so refreshing to hear from someone like that and we've got we've got a whole lot of them lined up so let's talk about who we've got coming up on the on the next episode of the podcast on the next episode um, is Sandy Miller, and she is known as the gate fan. So what is a gate fan? A gate fan is someone that hung around the gates pretty much all day long just to wait to get a glimpse of Elvis going to Hollywood. So this was in L.A. in Beverly Hills. And uh, he in the mid-'60s, Elvis was doing all the movies in Hollywood. So he'd go out in the morning so they'd get a glimpse of him then, and then he'd come back home in the afternoon they would know the time that he's coming back, and most of the time he'd wind down his window and say, say g'day, you know. But you'd have to be very lucky to actually be chosen to be in his inner circle, and Sandy was one of those women that um, was, a, you know, a true friend for Elvis yeah. right up until the end. Yeah, because uh, as we know, it was very hard for him to make friends because of because of who he was, uh, and that interaction. And uh, I mean, the, the, this would never happen these days. There would be security everywhere pushing these people away. But this is a yeah. kind of a, a simpler time, I guess, in many many ways. And and you could you could be that kind of fan and 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 become a friend. Yeah, I think some fans had those little secrets, you know, that that knew where where Elvis lived at the time or knew his movements um, because back then there was no social media, no mobile phone. So, you know, it was great for them to know that. But um, and on the other hand, Elvis would have a sense whether he liked you or not and whether he wanted to invite you in. So yeah. let's uh, let's wait to hear what Sandy yeah. says. Yeah, no, great stories there. That's coming up in the next episode. Mark, uh, I should mention, and we should, uh, you're, you're doing Elvis shows all around the country, so where can people see where they can uh, see you doing your Elvis show? I've got a website, markandrew.com.au, but, um, yeah, I've been performing 25 years. You know, it's uh, I started when I was five, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was only six. <laughs> I, know, I remember having an interview with you on uh, Gold FM, I think it was, in 97, about, yep. uh, you know, some uh, expo we were doing in Melbourne. But um, I, I love it. I still love it, and I do other characters as well. That keeps me sane. But... I just love promoting Elvis in a positive way and um, even the tours that I'm doing to America now and telling the stories along the way, it's great fun and it's, uh, you know, just something that I'm really passionate about. Absolutely. And more of it is coming uh, via this podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, have all the social media platforms, so uh, get in touch and share your Elvis stories with us because we'd love to hear them and maybe even tell them on this podcast. Thanks, Mark. Uh, we'll, Thanks, mate. We'll talk to you again in the yeah. next step. A little less conversation, a little more Elvis. I said, see, 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 see,